Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you're joining us online, thanks for uh, worshiping with us today, too. It was a year ago this weekend that me and my, my family and I came to South Hills Church um, for the first time. So this, was, this is a, it's a, kind of a fun weekend for us. So we're, great. we're just really grateful to be here. And I just want to begin by saying thank you for allowing me to be your pastor. Thanks for the way that you have graciously welcomed me and my family into your lives, into the life of this church. We're grateful to be here. And when we look over, back over this past year, we are super grateful for the ways that you as a church have encouraged us. You have prayed for us, um, your desire to just know us. And we are grateful for the relationships we built in our building and we're excited for what God is doing here and for the future that we get to grow with you. So we're, we're really grateful. So just want to start by saying thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, now, with that, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 16. If you have your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, hopefully you receive the handout on your way in here. It has the passage printed for you. But if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16. Um, if you were here this last week, you know that we looked at Luke chapter 16 as well. But we looked at the first part of Luke chapter 16, and in that part we addressed the challenge of greed. And so if you were here, you may remember that we touched on the very uncomfortable topic of money. And some of you are like, yeah, that was uncomfortable. So we did talk about it, right? But now today I thought we'd keep it a little bit lighter, and we would talk about the challenge of death instead, okay? So there you go. You're You're welcome. It is interesting, actually, in the first part of Luke chapter 16 that Jesus does talk about greed and he talks about wealth and he says, use your temporary resource, your wealth, now, while you have it, to make friends for yourself in heaven for the afterlife. The point being, use your temporary resources as a tool um, to make an eternal difference in the lives of other people. That's, the, that's what he talked about. Then he turns and he says, now let's talk about death and the afterlife. And so that's what we uh, really come to in this passage. And so it's an important thing. This summer we've been going through different challenges that we all face that Jesus addresses. And this is one of those topics that is uncomfortable, that um, many people would like to ignore and not talk about. But it is, in fact, a challenge that 100% of us will face. And so it's important that we still address it and talk about it together. Perhaps you've heard the story about the man who was constantly praying, constantly praying to God, constantly praying to God. And his his prayer to God was, God, is there going to be baseball in heaven? Is there going to be baseball in heaven? He's a big baseball fan. And so he was constantly praying, God, is there going to be baseball in heaven? He prayed it over and over. God, is there going to be baseball in heaven? God, is there going to be baseball in heaven? Eventually, at some point, um, an angel comes and uh, uh, comes to him and says, hey, I've come in response to your prayer. And the guy's like, wow, that's amazing. So tell me the truth. Is there going to be baseball in heaven? And the angel says to him, well, I've got some uh, good news and some bad news. And the guy says, well, let's start with the good news. What's the good news? And the angel says to him, well, the good news is this. There is going to be baseball in heaven. In fact, it's going to be 24-7 because it's never dark. It's always light. Every day is beautiful. Every day is a perfect baseball day. And the guy's like, yes, my dreams have come true. My prayers have been answered. This is so great. And then he says to the angel, so what's the bad news? And the angel says to him, you're pitching on Thursday. (laughs) Well, okay, so let that sink in for a moment, all right? (laughs) 
it may not be bad news, of course, depending on how you're prepared for it. But the point is this, that the reality is all of us have an appointment with death. And it's unavoidable. And fortunately for us, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus addresses this topic. And when it comes to the topic of death, um, I don't know about you, but I want to hear from someone who's an expert. And I'll tell you what, Jesus is an expert. He's an expert because he knows he's experienced death and he came out the other side. So he knows a thing or two about death. And I don't know if you know this, but apart from the revelation of God's word... What if, without this, all we have is speculation. All we have is people's best guesses. All we have is people wondering and guessing what the afterlife is, life is going to be about and what happens after death. All of it is speculation. But fortunately for us, we can look to Jesus, who knows, and is an expert. And he speaks to it. And I don't know about you, but on a subject of this matter, of this significance, I want to listen to someone and learn from someone who knows what they're talking about. When uh, my wife and I adopted our youngest son, Levi, um, it was just a few months after we brought him into our home, we found out, we discovered that he had an undiagnosed medical condition. And it was a serious condition. He had something called pulmonary artery sling, which means um, that he, he was born with his pulmonary artery wrapped around his trachea, and it was causing um, uh, life-threatening airway issues. And so once we discovered this, he was immediately scheduled for open-heart surgery. And um, it was one of those things where he had to have the surgery to, to reroute the artery, but also to reconstruct his trachea. So it was a pretty major surgery. And I remember we were sitting there talking to the doctor, um, the heart specialists, and they were talking about, you know, the process and the risks and all these things and talking about how long Levi is going to be, have to be on a heart-lung machine and and the doctor just looking at us could just probably see my wife and I just the concern growing as we're listening to all of these things. And the doctor just was so great. Um, she stops and she says, hey, listen, um, this is what we do. We are experts at this kind of thing. And it was so assuring because one of the things she said, she said is, and you know, this is something that we do. Um, these are the kinds of things that we do every day. It's like, oh, you do this every day? That's crazy, but you do it every day. So she was assuring us, hey, that, yeah, there's risk and there's all these things, but we do it every day. And it was helpful. Now, what would not have been helpful is if she had looked at us and said, oh, man, yeah, I've never done this before. <laughs> I don't know, but, but here's the good news. Don't worry, because I have watched every episode of Grey's Anatomy. And... <laughs> I am pretty sure, but by what, I've, what we've picked up from the show, that I can kind of figure out how this whole open heart surgery thing works, right? Now, she did not say that, and that's a good thing, right? Because that would not have been assuring, would it have? I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to give my child over to someone who's like, never done this before, guessing, trying to figure out how it goes from the TV shows that I've watched. Be like, no thank you. (laughs) That's not what we want. In the same way, we don't want to come to an important topic like death and come to somebody who's fumbling and guessing their way through, trying to figure it out, and they don't know for themselves for sure either. But fortunately for us, we get to hear in Luke chapter 16 from Jesus directly on the subject. And I'm so grateful that he speaks to it. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage with you because it's helpful, it's powerful, and it helps us help understand how we can move forward with hope and assurance when it comes to this very, very important topic, this issue that all of us 
will face. And so here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to um, please stand if you're able for the reading of Scripture. I want to read Luke chapter 16 in its entirety, um, or at least this, this section, and then we'll come back and we'll look at it verse by verse. But Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, it says this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. Let me first just say this by way of background that um, there is no evidence that this portion of Scripture is a parable or a story that Jesus is telling. But it has all the hallmarks of a real account. Um, see, when a parable is introduced in Scripture, so often what we come to in the New Testament is it's introduced just as a parable. There was a parable, and it says this. Or um, Jesus is talking, and he'll say something along these lines. He'll say, the kingdom is heaven of heaven is like and he uses it to kind of point to this parable, the story that he's going to give. But he doesn't do that here. In parables, Jesus talks about people generally. But in this passage, like, it's like saying things like, there was a certain man. But in this story, Jesus gives a specific name of a man. It's the only time. There's no parable that's given a specific name of a person. And so uh, my, my best guess is from the evidence here that this is a real account coming from the knowledge of Jesus. And so in, in that sense, this is in its own right a very, you know, very uh, interesting and amazing passage that has a great power to it as well as Jesus tells us. And so what I want to do is look now at verse, the first verse, verse 19. This is what it says. He introduces two people in this story uh, that he's giving. In verse 19, he says this, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So here's the first person, this rich person, and he's dressed in purple. And that helps us know that he is rich because purple, the dye for purple, um, was very, very expensive. And it was taken on by those who are royal, of royalty. And so it was one of 
those things that was not easily accessible. It was very, very expensive. And so the fact that he had purple points to how rich he is. Um, also, it says he had fine linen, so all the rest of his clothes were good too. But it says he had this, he wore these things every day. So it wasn't just that he was rich, but that he wanted to show off how rich he was. So it was something he wore every day. It's one thing to, to, to wear a Rolex. It's another thing to say, I'm going to wear it every day and have short sleeves so everyone can see the Rolex, right? That's kind of the idea. So it says he lived in luxury. That is, he lived flamboyantly. He, lives, he lived really uh, for the party, for lots of things. And so he lived, you know, spared no expense. This is kind of the way that he lived. This is the picture of the first person that we, we see here. Now, let me just mention this before I move on. I will just mention this. Um, because a question does come up sometimes. Well, is it wrong to be rich? Is it wrong to be wealthy? And I'll just say, no, no, no. It's not wrong to be rich. In fact, in the Old Testament, you know of Abraham. Abraham, the great father of faith. He was a rich man. In the New Testament, you know of Joseph of Arimathea, who yielded his grave to Jesus. He also was a wealthy man. So being rich is not wrong. But there is a warning that comes with riches. And the warning is, comes from the passage even previous to this, where Jesus is speaking and he says, listen, um, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. So what can happen is we can be divided and we can be devoted to one and not the other. So with riches, there is a warning that it can steal away your heart. And that's an important thing to get. Now, on the other side, it's also important to recognize that the want of riches can also steal away our heart. And so it can come in both ways, and that's the warning that's given to us in Scripture, but it's not wrong to be rich. Then verse 20 says this, At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. So here's the other person, and this is the person that's given by name, this beggar named Lazarus. And it says that he was laid at his gate. Literally, it means thrown, kind of dumped at the gate of this guy. And the fact that this guy has a gate is a pretty big deal. He's probably got a very, very, very nice residence, um, a mansion, and he's dumped at this gate, and it's there that he begs. And it's, he's likely dumped there because he can't get there himself. This is the only way that he can provide anything for himself. And so he's begging at this gate. And the question that you probably want to, you know, that I wonder, and maybe you wonder too, is does the rich man know this guy Lazarus who's at his gate every day? Does he have a relationship with him? Does he know who he is? And um, the fact that it says in this verse that he has sores on his body um, points out to me that he probably does know who Lazarus is. If nothing else, to avoid Lazarus. You know how that goes when there's, you see someone you don't really want to look at? You try to see them before they know it so that when you see them, you don't have to see them. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe not. Okay, well, I think this guy got pretty good at that. The rich man was pretty good at seeing without seeing um, this guy who was at his uh, gate. Then verse 21. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sore. So it goes on and tells a little bit more about this guy, this guy who was at his gate. This guy, Lazarus, was, was longing for the food, the scraps that came from the table. So what is that? The bread that comes from his table. Uh, the, the idea behind that is this, that in this ancient world, they didn't have, uh, at this ancient time, they didn't have silverware yet. That really didn't come into play. So they ate with their fingers. They also didn't have napkins um, yet. And so when they ate with their fingers, the question then is, well, how do you clean your fingers off? And the way that they, people would clean their fingers is they would lick their fingers to clean them. It's still a method that people use today, isn't it? <laughs> 
even though we have napkins. And you're like, why? But that's just the way it goes. Um, but if you are rich and you're wealthy and you can spare no, you know, you have the ability to kind of live flamboyantly in luxury, um, what they would have, the rich people would have bread that they would use as a napkin. So they would eat with their hands. It would get messy. Then they would use bread to kind of like clean off their hands, use it like a napkin. They'd throw it in a little bowl in the center of where they're eating. And that was kind of the scrap. That was their napkin that they would use. That's what he's looking for. That's what he's longing for, the napkin bread, the bread that's being tossed out. Now, it doesn't say, by the way, that he doesn't get it. Um, There's no indication that he doesn't get that. Um, But even if he does receive this bread that's the scraps that's falling from the table, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that this rich man is so generous and kind because he's just throwing out the trash in his mind, and it just may be received by this guy. So that's what's going on. We don't know if he received it, but what he does receive, we do know, is um, dogs. He receives dogs who lick his sores. Now, just so you know, these dogs in, in, in this time were not pets. These were not pets. These were feral scavenger dogs. And so it's kind of a, you know, not a great picture. But the dogs are probably there for the same scraps of food. Um, they're licking his sores. It's really kind of a, 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 a harsh environment and way in which this man is living. Then verse 22, it says this. The time came when the beggar died. So the time came when the beggar died. So the, these guys, that's the contrast initially in the first couple of verses of how they lived their life, quite different. How they lived in the afterlife is quite different as well. And that's what we focus on the next, next couple of verses. And it says that this guy dies, the beggar, and it, but it doesn't say, notice, it does not say that he had a burial or that he had a funeral. It just says that he died. And the reason why it doesn't include that is probably because he didn't have a burial. And he probably didn't have a funeral. If you were poor, and in a poor, um, poor places where there's, there's poverty, um, one of the challenges, what do you do with, with bodies and people? And so um, it was one of the, you know, ancient challenges for them in, in a place of poverty. And it seems, you know, harsh to even say it at the same time. But the two um, disposal issues in the ancient world where there is poverty is trash and bodies. Those are the two ancient disposal issues. Trash, of course, because people didn't, you know, have systems of, you know, pick up of your trash to your door, and, and it just goes away. They didn't have that system. And so in, in Jerusalem, there was built up on a hill, there was, there was a valley below called the Valley of Hinnom. And there was a fire that was set the, below at the base of the valley. And this was the, the trash dump, the place where people would throw their trash, and it would burn, and it was constantly burning, always burning. And uh, it, it translated in Aramaic, it's, it's the, this valley of Hinnom is, is Gehenna. And this is where we get that, that word Gehenna that's translated hell in, the, in Greek, and it comes with this sense of torment and, and, uh, and, and burning and all these things. And this is likely where um, uh, his body was put to as well. He was burned there in, in this uh, fire. So this is his, his experience uh, after he dies. But here's the comforting part. The next part of this, this verse is so comforting. It says this, And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And I don't know about you, but I find this extremely comforting because what it tells me is that the angels who carry him here, it, it just points out the fact that he was never alone in death. And I just think that's comforting for many of you who maybe are worried about death or have a loved one who has died and you wonder what's, what happens. This, this verse points out the fact that he's not alone. 
And I think especially during COVID, for many of you, I know your hearts were heavy, my heart was heavy for those who maybe weren't able to be with a loved one who was in the hospital for various reasons or restrictions, or maybe they died and, and they died in the, in, in the hospital and you weren't able to be with them. This verse kind of just helps us recognize it with a comfort that they're not alone if they've died in faith. If they died in faith, that is faith in, in God, it says here that the angels carried him and carried him to, to the Lord. It says carried him to Abraham's side. Abraham's side is a, a picture of paradise. Uh, it's the place um, for those who have placed their faith in the Lord um, that they would come. Abraham, of course, if you know um, from the Old Testament, is the father of faith. So those who have placed their faith have then been brought, made right with God, and be, as a result of that, after death, they're brought into a place of paradise where they're now spending eternal life with God. So this is the place of paradise, which is, um, which is an, an, a wonderful thing. And here, um, Lazarus is experiencing paradise. He had a rough um, earthly life, but now he's in paradise and he's experiencing blessing by Abraham's side, which is wonderful. But it also is very insightful for us when it comes to the afterlife. Because this, this verse helps us understand that if, you've, if you die in faith, that you are brought by God into a place of um, uh, conscious blessedness. Isn't that good news? That if you die in faith, you're brought into a place of conscious blessedness. See, see Lazarus is aware and he's, he's, he's brought into this place of conscious blessedness by God. And so this is a good, this is, this is an encouraging, encouraging thing. Then it says this, the contrast, of course, the rich man also died and was buried. So notice the rich man, he did, ha- he was buried. And my guess is he had a pretty big funeral because he was rich and wealthy and so there was probably a lot to do about his funeral. Lots of people came um, to be a part of the, 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 his funeral. Maybe they were also coming to hear the reading of the will and say, am I going to be a part of the, 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 the resources that are come now that he's gone? And so there's lots of probably celebration. There's lots of like mourning. Then maybe people said, let's write a biography about him or let's take his name and, and slap it on the, the, you know, the wing of this building. You know, there's some, some of those things going on because there was a lot much to do probably about him and about his body. And this is a, an important contrast that we need to recognize too. And because I know that um, what we need to understand, well, what happens to the body? You know, he was buried. The other guy wasn't. What happens to the body and our spirit and all that? And so let me just say this. The Bible teaches that there's really two components um, to our existence. There's the material and the immaterial. So just think the seen and the unseen. And what we tend to do is we spend a lot of time focused on the scene, that is the body. Um, and that's important. The body is important, but it's not the, the central component of things. The spirit is what's central. And we know that to be true in lots of ways, and we know that to be true intrinsically um, in lots of arenas. So if you know someone who's been in an accident and they're in a wheelchair, or you know someone who's had, uh, had an amputation, what you would then say to them is, hey, You've been through this, but guess what? It does not change who you are, right? That's the word of comfort that you give to them. That's the truth. Someone who has had a deteriorating disease, cancer or some other thing, and it's deteriorated their body, what you say to them rightfully is, hey, I know this is happening, but it doesn't change who you are because we know there's something more than just the body. There's the spirit, 
And this is the important thing. And the question then is, well, what happens um, to the body and the spirit? And I know that sometimes people have the question of, well, uh, I've had people come up to me and say, what about cremation? What about cremation? And the, the question that people have is, is it okay to, to cremate a body? And I'll tell you this, Lazarus was likely cremated. And the question is not what happened to the body, but what happened to the spirit. And that's the important thing. That you, you die in faith or, or out of faith. That's the important thing of where your spirit goes, where you live for eternity. But I will say this, by, um, just by side note, on the body part, that even though there is the spirit in the body and, and death is separation, that is your body dies and, and your spirit goes on, the good news is, in the New Testament, it talks about a new body that we're given that catches up to our eternal spirit. And I know for some of you, you're thinking to yourself, hallelujah, right? <laughs> You're thinking, okay, I cannot wait for that new body, right? And so you're saying right now, get out of my way when I get that body, and I know that I can't break it, um, you know, just here goes, you know? And that's, that's, that's fun to think about, and that's a great promise and hope that we get that new body. But this is, this is an important teaching of Scripture, and the question, though, that we need to ask is what happens to the Spirit? This man has is, is, is died, and he's buried, but his Spirit lives on. His, the spirit is, our spirits are eternal. And so it says this in verse 23, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So Lazarus died in faith and he was brought into the, by the side of Abraham, the father of faith, the place of, of faithful, those who've been right with God. That's where he's brought. This other man died um, without faith and he's brought to Hades. And your translation may say another word, hell or the grave. Um, it doesn't really matter. I think in some ways what this word is, the important thing that's central reality in, in whatever translation you have, whether it's hell, Hades, grave, it's all a place of torment. Four different times in this passage, that word torment and agony is used to a place that he's brought to. And so you cannot come to a passage like this or this scripture and not come to the conclusion that there is a real place of conscious pain, conscious agony. And that's what we refer to as hell or Hades. This is, this, there's, a, there is a, there's a real place. And I know that some of you say, well, I don't like that. Let me tell you something. I don't like it either. Some of you say, well, I don't want to have to deal with that. Well, get used to disappointment. That's the reality. Some of you are saying, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can put my trust in a God who would do this. Well, just back up with me for a moment and just listen. This is coming from the lips of Jesus, the most caring, compassionate, gracious person in all of history. He's the one that cared about so much, us so much, that he came and he gave his very life for us on the cross so that we could have life. This is the, the man who, when he walked among the crowds, he set aside his agenda, his rest, his meals, so that he could heal people, so he could care for people. In his compassion and his grace, he says to us, listen, and we need to listen. If the most gracious, compassionate person in all history is saying, listen up, there's a potential for real loss. We need to listen. 
And it's not about shooting the messenger at that point, because if he's telling us the truth, we need to be responsive to the truth, and we know he cares. And so we need to listen, and we need to respond. And so this is what we need to see here. Then he says, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Then in verse 24, he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. He calls up and he says, Father Abraham. So he's making a, a, a family connection. He's trying to make a bloodline connection. And this is what lots of people still do today, by the way. We try to make a a family connection and turn it into a spiritual connection. People still do this today. You say, well, you know, you talk to somebody and say, well, yeah, yeah, you know, know, my my brother-in-law, this is what they do. Or my my sister, she's super faithful, super into God. My grandfather, he was really spiritual. And what people try to do is tie a family connection and make it a spiritual connection. But that's not what works. It's not a family connection. It's a faith connection. That's what God's interested in. He's not interested in the bloodline. He's in a personal faith relationship that you would have with him. And this is why I talk, when I talk to students all the time who have grown up in the church, I ask the question, at what point did your faith become your own and not your family's? Because I think we can make the error of saying, well, I've been in this family and people around me are believers or grew up in church. And we miss the fact that it's not a family connection that God is interested in. It's a faith connection. That, that we put our faith and trust in the Lord, in Jesus Christ. That's what he's interested in. That's how we have assurance and hope of where we might be. But he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. He says, all I want is a drip for on my tongue. Then verse 25, we see the response. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. I think the most haunting word in this verse is the, is the word remember. That is, there is this, this recognition that even um, in, in, in this place of torment that you can remember uh, and, and have that, and that probably is part of the torment, that in you, if you die outside of faith, that there's this, this sense of remembering um, that, that, that life and, and the, missing, the missing it. And so he's saying, hey, listen, there's a couple of, he, Abraham says, that he's, listen, remember, that's what he calls him to do. In your lifetime, this is how you lived, and this is what you gave yourself to. You gave yourself to things and about the consumption of things for you, and you didn't put your faith and trust in God. Your, your God was your money, your wealth, the, the living the life that you live. But Lazarus didn't have a great life, but he had faith and he trusted me. So he says, listen, this, he's receiving blessing and he's receiving, he didn't he maybe have the greatest life on earth, but he's receiving blessing and eternity because of his faith and his faithfulness to God. So he's saying, this is why you're not receiving this. But then there's a second reason, verse 26 says this, and he besides all this, between us and Um, you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So the words here that I want you to see is there's a great chasm that's been set in place, that it's fixed. Sometimes people will ask the question, what about reincarnation? What about a second chance? And the reality is that says is there's a chasm and it's fixed. It's set in place. That is, you can't go from one side to the other. So there is no reincarnation. There is no second chance. This is the uh, final state, and this is um, a sobering, sobering thing. 
And so then verse 27, he says this, and he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. When he recognizes, yep, it's fixed. I can't go back. There are no, there's no second chance. There's no reincarnation. He says this, send Lazarus to my family. And it's interesting um, in this, this statement, there's rich man still sees, by the way, Lazarus as someone who should serve him. You get that? You see that? He's like, send Lazarus to give me a dip of water. Uh, send Lazarus to my family. He still sees Lazarus as someone who should be serving him. Then verse 28, it says this, For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. This is an interesting verse because what it tells us is that there is evangelistic zeal in hell when it's too late to do anything. And that's hard. I'll run into people at times who will say to me, hey, the church should be all about the, the people in the church, those who have found faith in Jesus Christ. We need to um, cater to them, focus on them, program for them. Um, we need to build up the people who are the members of our church. And let me just say this. I care very deeply about those who have found faith in Christ. And I care very deeply about the members of our church. And I care and want desperately for every single follower of Jesus Christ to grow in full faith maturity. But you know what breaks my heart? Is the people who haven't yet found Christ. What breaks my heart is there are people who are lost, who are alone, who have no security. They don't have peace. They haven't experienced forgiveness and the life and the joy that Jesus offers to them yet. That breaks my heart. So yes, I want to care for the found, but I don't want to lose sight of the lost. And so by God's grace, may we be a people, may we be a church that never stops reaching the lost, that we never stop sharing the good news. Because there's evangelistic zeal in hell and it's too late. So right now, today, we need to be reaching with evangelistic zeal while we still can those who don't yet know Jesus and we don't give up. When we talk about one epic week that's coming up in a few weeks here at South Hills, I love the fact that we can do a bunch of events and that can help us grow and connect. And I love that. I want that. I want us to grow deeper in our connection with one another. But I also want us to not miss the opportunity to leverage things like One Epic Week, events that are non-threatening, to be opportunities for us to reach out to people who don't yet know Jesus. That we might be able to say, hey, come along, and through your care, through your character, through your relationship, and through the environment of the church, they might have their hearts opened to who Jesus is. And so we've talked about, hey, we want you to come to One Epic Week, but we also want you to be thinking about who can I bring with me? Who can I invite? Who can I be reaching out to, praying for, saying, hey, come along, because there's good news, and God has something for you. We don't want to miss that. And so there's evangelistic zeal in hell, and I just want to say this one more last thing about hell. Um, in, this, in this, maybe you've been in environments, by the way, where you've run into people who are very flippant about hell, and they'll say things like, hey, you know what? I know I'm going to hell, but at least I'll have lots of company with me. You heard that one? Listen, this guy is in hell and he doesn't want company. Do you feel that? He's saying, no, no, no. Company 
would be torment to me. It's not an encouragement. He's saying, listen, uh, we, we, we need to have a, a, hell is not a joking matter. It's not one of those things that uh, you don't let anyone sell you on the fact that, hey, hell is just this, this place, this, you know, endless New Year's Eve party where you can just, you know, do whatever you want without consequence over and over for eternity with all your friends. That is not what hell's about. And so it's not a joking matter. And so we need to take it seriously now while we can because uh, eternity is at stake. Then verse 29, it says this. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. So he says, Moses, the prophets, so this is, he's referring to the Old Testament and um, they didn't have the New Testament at this time. So um, when he talks about the Old Testament, they would often refer to it as Moses and the prophets. They have God's word is what he's saying. And I'll just say over and over in God's word, the invitation is, is God saying he's seeking people who will put faith in him, who will abandon faith and confidence in their abilities, their um, family connections, in their good works, but to put their full faith and trust in God. That's what the over, overwhelming message in scripture is over and over and over. God who is seeking us, who, who is desiring us to come to him and turn to him in faith. He says, listen to them. Then verse 30 says, no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. So he says, no, no, no. I don't want this Bible, boring Bible stuff. You know, I want something flashy. You know what I mean? If someone from the dead comes to, the, to my brothers, then they'll turn, then they'll repent. Listen to the response in verse 31. He says, he said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. That is, if you're not morally sensitive, you won't be miraculously sensitive. If you're not sensitive to God's word and his invitation to trust him, even the great miracles won't change your heart. And so he's saying, and we see this played out actually just not that long after this with another guy named Lazarus, who's not this one, but Jesus' friend who does die. Jesus does give him his life back. And the opponents of Jesus have still have a hard heart. Lazarus just goes up on their hit list. That's all that happens. And they want to bury the evidence. They want to dismiss it. And so it's not the miraculous. It's a responsiveness to who Jesus is and what he said. That's the, that's the issue. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, well, how, do we, how do we address this challenge? How do I move forward? What's the application for me when it comes to this, this issue of death in the afterlife? And so I want to give you some wisdom. And it's not my wisdom. It's wisdom from uh, King Solomon. King Solomon is a an ancient king of Israel who's known for his great wisdom, he has some very interesting words to say about death and about funerals that I want you to hear. And when I'm at funerals, this is the, one of the verses I go to because it's, I think, to me, very, very helpful. He says this, uh, Solomon, King Solomon does. He says this in Ecclesiastes 7, 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. It's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. What does that mean? Well, put simply, he's saying, or in contemporary language, he is saying, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute. I would much rather go to a party than a funeral. But he says there's wisdom, and it's better for us to go to a funeral than to a party. The question is, well, why? Because that doesn't make sense to us. What is the wisdom behind this? And he helps it by answering it, that, that, that statement in the following part of verse 2. He says this, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. He's saying, hey, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party because guess what? Death is the destiny for all of us. And you've perhaps been there. 
you've been to the memorial service, and you hear people talking about their life, and you hear things are going on, and you recognize, yeah, they had their day. I'm going to have my day. So I need to take this to heart. Question is, how do I take it to heart? Let me give you two helpful questions that can come to us that we can take to heart when we think about death and memorials and our appointed day. Let me give you two things. The first question is this. To take this to heart, the first thing is this. Ask this question. What will be said of me when I die? What will be said of me when I die? You've been to the memorial service. When someone passes away, uh, everyone starts sharing, you know, well, here's their memories and here's the things that they're, you know, how they touched me, the impact they had. And so for us to take it to heart now while we're living is to ask the question, what am I living for? What do I want my legacy to be? What is it that I want people to line up for at my funeral and say, wow, this is the impact they made. This is what they did. This is how they lived their life. And so it's important for us to take it to heart now to say, yeah, maybe I need to change some of the ways that I'm living right now. Maybe I need to be looking for how, not just how I use my, uh, my little bit of resources and the little bit of opportunity for me, but instead say, God, I've got this little bit of resource, this little bit of opportunity. I want to use it for someone else and to make a difference for eternity. The assumption, not just that everything we have is for our consumption, but how can we make a difference for eternity in the lives of others? So it makes us ask the question, how am I living and what difference am I making? And when I look at Luke chapter 16, I have to ask the question, what was it that the rich man did? What did he do with his life? (laughs) He ate, he drank, he was merry, and then he died. Not a great legacy, right? See, because the question is, well, what did he do with his life? Well, when he saw Lazarus, did he kick Lazarus? No, he didn't kick Lazarus. When he saw Lazarus, did he spit on him when he was walking by the gate? Nope. Did he keep Lazarus from food? Nope. What did he do? Nothing. He did nothing. Again, not a great legacy. All the wealth that he had all the temporary resources he had, and he used it for his own appetite. So the question that we have to ask is, okay, God, will you transform my heart? Because you've been such a generous and giving God to me, will you transform me so that I can be generous towards others? I can see the needs of people and I can make a difference with who I am, the resources you've given me for eternity. To ask the question, what will be said of me when I die is very, very important for us to take to heart. Second question is this, what will happen to me when I die? What will happen to me when I die? Death is separation, our body from our spirit, and our spirit lives on for eternity. The question is, where will you go? Where will you be? And the Bible is very clear. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf on the cross experience his forgiveness, experience his grace and his peace, guess what? You will not be alone, not in this life or in the life to come. You'll be in his presence. You reject Jesus. You turn away from his offer of forgiveness and grace. You will be alone, not only in this life, but in the life to come. The invitation is there, but it's up to us to respond. Who will you respond to? Where will you put your faith? In Jesus or something else? Jesus says, trust me. I've been there and I've been out the other side. I want to bring you with me into heaven for eternity. Let's take a moment and let's pray 
It will be an opportunity for all of us to respond to him. As we come to this time of prayer, I just want to remind you this is a moment for you and the Lord. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, hey, you know what? I, I'm ready to respond to Jesus. You're here and you're saying, yeah, I've been putting my faith in myself and lots of other things and it's left me empty. And so today may be your moment to say, Jesus, I want to put my faith and trust in you. And if that's where you're at, you can make it your simple prayer right now and say, Lord Jesus, I trust in you. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. And I ask that you would come into my life and lead me, not just in this life, but in the life to come. You pray that prayer of faith. He promises he'll never leave you or forsake you. For some of you, you just need to stop and say, I need to take to heart how I'm living my life now. Maybe you've placed your faith in the Lord, but you've been pretty consumed with meeting your own needs and thinking temporally instead of internally. And maybe this is an opportunity for you to say, Lord, help me to see people the way that you want me to see them. To live generously, to give and not be focused on what can I get. Maybe there's specific people you know you need to reach out to to care for, to listen to, and maybe to share the good news with because they have yet to put their faith in Jesus. God, again, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for your great love and grace, for the fact that when it comes to death, you don't leave us um, with nothing, that you've sent your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, he died for us so that we could know you and be with you. We're grateful for that, Lord. And because of that, we sing these songs. We worship you with a heart of gratitude. In your name, amen.